Today we bring this great study to a close as we're going to look at those final verses in the Sermon on the Mount, the last few verses in Matthew chapter 7. Well, I'm going to put a a picture on the screen here in just a moment, and I want you to see how quickly you can recognize this famous building. You ready for this? Three, two, one. Here we go. You knew it like that, didn't you? The Leaning Tower of Pisa, one of the most recognizable buildings in the world, has a really interesting history. It was created and built as a bell tower back in the 12th century. It was built as a bell tower. Construction began in the year 1173. And five years into construction, when they got up to the third floor, they said, "Uh uh-oh, this tower is leaning ever so slightly To the south. And so the architect and the engineer got their heads together and they came up with a solution. What we're going to do is as we add extra floors beyond the third floor, we will make the uphill side floors just a little bit shorter than the downhill side floors. So they began doing this. But as they added more floors, the lean got worse and worse and worse. Six hundred years later, we got into the 1980s. And the Leaning Tower of Pisa was leaning by some five degrees, which led to some really fun photos of tourists like this. (laughs) Tourists in the 80s and 90s in particular were taking all sorts of goofy pictures because this tower had gotten to where it was leaning so much. And experts and engineers came to the conclusion it wasn't just leaning. It was actually falling at the rate of one to two millimeters per year. And they realized if they didn't do something drastic, the Leaning Tower of Pizza was going to topple over completely. Well, what did they do? They got their heads together and between 1990 and 2001, a team of 13 experts worked together to save the tower by reinforcing its foundation with concrete. Why would they do that? Because the reason the Leaning Tower of Pisa leans is because it has a bad foundation. And when they reinforced that foundation with concrete, they came to the conclusion that they bought the Leaning Tower of Pisa at least 200 more years. Well, today, as Jesus finishes up his Sermon on the Mount, he is going to ask us to do some soul searching, some serious spiritual soul searching. And he's going to ask us to carefully check our foundation. I'm calling today's message, Build Your House on the Rock. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 24. Once again, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Here's how God's word reads the final verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. May God bless us as we read and most importantly apply his word to our lives today. 
Well, we began the study of the Sermon on the Mount in early January. It's been over six months since we began this study, and we've explored each and every verse of these amazing three chapters, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In chapter 5, remember, Jesus began his sermon with eight beatitudes, eight blessed are statements. He began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then he gave five more of those blessed are statements. And then he continued to go on by talking about uh, beyond the Beatitudes, how God has called us to be salt and light in our dark world. He made it clear that he was raising the bar. And we talked about that during the month of February. Jesus was raising the bar and and the Pharisees and even the Old Testament law had given certain commands and Jesus took it to the next level. The Pharisees had been teaching that you shall not murder. And Jesus said, it's not just about not murdering physically. He said, you shouldn't even harbor anger in your heart against a brother. The Pharisees were teaching you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus took it to the next level and said, you know what? Adultery begins in the heart. So if you lust after a woman you're not married to in your heart, you're already committing adultery, according to God. The Pharisees were saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And Jesus rose the raised the bar and he said, no, you are to love your enemies and you are to pray for those who persecute you. In chapter six, Jesus taught us the right way to give to the poor and the right way to pray and the right way to fast. Uh, Don't do it, Jesus said, like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners and blow trumpets. He said, when you pray and when you give and when you fast, do it discreetly just between you and God, because God sees what you're doing. And if you love God from your heart, you just have that audience of one. And Jesus taught us that right way to do the religious acts that we carry out. Jesus taught us so much about prayer there in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, we spent three weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus taught us to, to work into our prayers and to model our prayers after this wonderful model He gave us in Matthew 6. We are to pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done. We're praying for God's will to be done here in our little corner of the world just like it is done in heaven. Well, in chapter 7, Jesus taught us to take the planks out of our own eyes and And make sure that we don't nitpick others before we've dealt with our own sin. And Jesus ended this great sermon in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27, by highlighting, as we've seen over the last couple Sundays, two roads, two trees, and two houses. And this is so important. Jesus wanted to conclude his great sermon with this teaching. Each of us is on one of two roads. You're either on the wide road that leads to eternal destruction in hell or you're on the narrow road that leads to eternal life in heaven. And most people sadly take the wide road because the wide road is the easy road and it's the short road. It's so easy to be on the wide road to hell. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit on your couch and watch TV and eat Cheetos 24-7 and you will never be kicked off the wide road. It's easy to be on the wide road to hell, but Jesus urges us to be on the narrow road. It's a harder road. It's a longer road. It's a road that requires some self-discipline and thought. But Jesus urges us to take that road because the destination is so much better. Oh, the destination of heaven where there is eternal peace and comfort and joy and love. Oh, is so much better than the eternal destination of hell, which is filled with grief and filled with pain and agony and torture and regret. 
Jesus says, take the narrow road. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But take it because the destination is so much better. And here at the end of this amazing sermon, Jesus shares a short parable that highlights two houses. One built on bedrock and the other built on sand. And as he gives this wonderful parable, he puts a bow on the final package of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's been a while since we talked about parables, so I want to make sure we all understand what a parable is. We'll just have a a quick little review on what a parable is so we can make sure we understand this little parable that Jesus gives us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The word parable is actually a transliteration of this Greek word paraboli. Now remember, a a transliteration is different than a translation. A a translation, for instance, the word amigo in Spanish translates into friend in English. Uh, The Greek word basileia translates into English as kingdom. So you take a Greek word, or in that first example, a Spanish word, and you translate it into English. A transliteration is different. A transliteration is simply taking, in the case of Greek to English, Greek letters and switching each of those letters to English letters. Uh, baptizo is a Greek word. The, English, the letters were just switched to English, creating a new English word, baptism. And this word parabola is the same way. Those Greek letters were switched to English letters, creating a brand new English word, parable. That word parabola in the Greek literally means to throw alongside. And so a pretty good translation of that word parabola would be a parallel story. It's that Greek word parabola from which we get our English word parallel. So what is a parable? It is a parallel story. It is most often a fictional story that Jesus places alongside a spiritual truth in order to illustrate that spiritual truth or in many cases to reveal A spiritual truth. So there is a certain amount of explanation and illustration that takes part, that takes place in parables, and there's a certain amount of revelation that takes place in parables. So, parables provide powerful illustrations and even revelations of spiritual truth, but here's the catch. Parables, even though they oftentimes illustrate a spiritual principle that's difficult to understand, parables by themselves are not necessarily easy to understand. Parables, more times than not, require some effort to understand. Most people aren't willing to put in the effort to understand what Jesus means in any one of his parables. Listen to what Jesus says about parables in Luke chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus says this, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So Jesus reveals here that there are actually two purposes to his parables. Purpose number one, they reveal the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom to Jesus' true followers. And purpose number two, they conceal the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from those who are faking it. Does that make sense? They reveal and they conceal. If you are on the narrow road to heaven, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, a parable is designed to illustrate and reveal spiritual truth to you. But if you are on the wide road to hell, 
that same parable is designed to conceal the truth. You could think of it this way, as Jesus reminded us in the prior chapter here in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Well, if God wants everyone to be saved, some might ask the question, if God does want everyone to be saved, if God does want everyone to go to heaven, why on earth would he conceal spiritual truth that may tip the scales and lead them to accept Christ as Savior? It's a fair question. Well, I like how Pastor Chuck Swindoll answers that question. He answers it this way. He writes, Jesus confirmed to his disciples that parables would separate genuine disciples from pretenders, from bandwagon jumpers, from hypocrites. The parables would confound those who did not want to receive and obey God's word. Yet these same stories would instruct those who had chosen to place their trust in the Son of God. Everyone in Jesus' audience had the ability to understand but not the desire. It was a problem of the heart, not a problem of the head. It's pretty well said, isn't it? In other words, if you are on the wide road to destruction, to you, Jesus's parables will just be interesting stories that seem irrelevant to you. That's the typical way someone that's not a true follower of Christ views these parables. Interesting, but not terribly relevant to my life. Because the wide road to destruction is the lazy road, remember? It's a lazy road. And when you're on the lazy road, you don't want to put in the work into understanding spiritual truths, especially spiritual truths that are nudging you in the direction of repenting of your sins and changing the way that you live. But if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you'll be willing to put in a little bit of work to understand Jesus' parables And as a result, they will reveal and clarify some important truths about living in the kingdom of heaven right here on planet Earth. Well, with that in mind, let's take a closer look at Jesus' little parable, the parable of the two houses here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are two men in Jesus' parable here, two builders And there are at least three similarities between these two men. Let me give them to you quickly. We'll put them on the screen for you. Three similarities. Number one, both of these builders hear Jesus' teaching. It's very clear from the beginning of this passage. They hear Jesus' teaching before they begin building. Number two, they both build houses. And number three, both of their houses are tested by a great storm. I want to focus on number one there for just a moment. It's important to understand that the building that Jesus is talking about here is done by men who have heard the word. Jesus is not contrasting someone who has heard the Sermon on the Mount with someone who has not heard the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is contrasting the reaction, the response, the living out or failure to live out of what he has taught between these two men. So they both heard the word. The question is how they responded to the hearing of the word. Well, we have these three similarities. And as I look at this parable, it's safe to say that there are at least four differences between these two builders. Number one, the first man obeys Jesus's words. The second man doesn't. Number two, Jesus calls the first man wise. He calls the second man foolish. Number three, the wise man builds his house on bedrock. The foolish man builds his house on sand. 
And then finally, number four, the wise man's house survives the storm while the foolish man's house is what? It's destroyed. So those are the four differences that piggyback off the three similarities. Well, those are the basic details of the parable. What does it mean? Well, remember that the context of the passage is always critical to understanding any portion of Scripture. And so the entire Sermon on the Mount, remember, came on the heels of Jesus preaching this powerful little message that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4. Before Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was going from town to town to town, preaching this simple, basic message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his bottom line message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Say it with me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to turn from our sin. That's what repentance means. Calls us to turn from our sin and bring some of the best things of heaven down to our little corner of the world. So Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount primarily to his followers who have chosen to follow him as Savior and Lord. And remember that Jesus 2,000 years ago didn't just teach us how to get to heaven someday after we die. He began to invade earth with heaven. And he has called every one of his followers to take some of the best things of heaven and continue the invasion here on planet earth. Yeah, we live in a hell-like world, don't we? But he's called us to invade hell with some of the best parts of heaven. The love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the truth and the humility and the peace and the purity of heaven. And here in chapter 7, the verses preceding this parable, Jesus has made it clear that many people who think they are on the narrow road to heaven aren't. They're actually on the wide road to destruction. We looked at that last week. Many people who think they are saved aren't really saved. Many people who think they are followers of Christ aren't really followers of Christ. Many people in the church, don't miss this, many people in the church are under the impression that they are able to call Jesus Lord without actually doing what he says to do. Many who come to church week in and week out believe they can call Jesus Lord without actually obeying him as Lord. And Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, no, you can't do that. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That doesn't work that way. And so Jesus drives this hard-hitting truth home in this little parable. I hope your thinking caps are on because, once again, understanding a parable requires some thought. And so I'm going to share with you what the symbolism is here in the parable as best as I understand it. I'm going to share with you my interpretation of this parable, but I want you to think about it and listen and and process it and meditate on it and see if what I share with you as far as an interpretation seems to jive with what God is saying in his word. Let's start with the symbolism. The symbolism, you are the builder. Two builders in the story, you're one of them. The house is your life. That first builder builds his house on the rock. The second builder builds it on the sand. What are they building? That house represents your life. The rock is obedience to Christ's teaching. The sand is anything else that you build your life upon other than obedience to Christ's teaching. The storm is the testing of your faith here on earth. And secondly, the storm also represents the storm of judgment. And that's clear from those prior verses 
where Jesus has just gotten through telling us many will stand before him on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you away from me. So that storm represents both trials in this life here on earth and also the day of judgment. So to the best of my understanding, this is what the parable means. You have heard Jesus teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it. You have thought about it. Maybe like the crowds in verse 28, you've even been amazed by it. But Jesus is asking you today, are you going to live it out? Are you going to be a doer of the word or are you just going to be a hearer? Are you going to get to the end of this study and say, well, that was interesting. Uh, That was really nice. Uh, That was inspiring, but not actually live it out. You see, you are building your life and to many people around you, your life looks really, really good. You look like a follower of Christ. You talk like a follower of Christ. You sing and even shout amen like a follower of Christ. But Jesus is not looking on the outside, is he? He's not looking at what everyone else sees. He looks at the heart. Following Jesus faithfully is a matter of the heart. And Jesus is wanting to ask you through this parable, have you built your life on the solid foundation of the teaching of the word of God and committed yourself to obey the word of God? Come hell or high water. Obey the word of God, no matter what trials and temptations come. He wants to ask you that question because he can guarantee you that hard times are coming. The tests and the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties are coming. You're going to be criticized by people around you for your faith, even by people that you love and respect. Jesus will ask you to do some things down the road that you don't want to do. And he'll tell you to stop doing some things you'd rather just keep on doing. Uh, Jesus knows that sooner or later, your priorities are going to be tested and your motives are going to be tested and your devotion to Christ is going to be tested. And if your life isn't built on the foundation of obedience to the word of Christ, your faith will crumble. We ask the question, why would it crumble when the suffering and the temptations and the difficulties come? Why would my faith crumble? It will crumble because if you're not obeying Christ as Lord, then your faith has no foundation. It's not built to last. The truth is, if you're not obeying Christ, then you're a fake Christian. We looked at this last week. Obedience is the greatest sign of an authentic faith. You can't call Jesus Savior and not follow Him and obey Him as Lord. You can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. Fake Christians will always jump ship when the ride gets a little too bumpy. And Jesus is reminding us in this parable that life is going to get bumpy. The storms of life have a way of separating real Christ followers from fake ones. And so does the day of judgment. In Proverbs 10:25 and Isaiah 28 verses 16 and 17 and in Ezekiel 13 verses 10 through 13, God's judgment is described as a fierce storm. And Jesus picks up on that here in this parable. Here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us once again that judgment day is coming. One day, every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ and have to give an account of the life that we lived here on earth. And according to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15, Jesus will test your life with fire. Your life will be fed through the flames of testing. The the fire trial 
the fire storm, your life will be fed through those flames and only what you did in obedience to Christ will survive those flames. Sadly, on the day of judgment, many people who called themselves Christians and were members of a church and did lots of religious things will see their lives completely consumed in that firestorm. And they will hear Jesus speak those seven terrifying words that he spoke in those prior verses. I never knew you away from me. Sadly, on the day of judgment, many people who call themselves Christians will hear those seven condemning words. It doesn't matter how good your Christian life looks to those around you. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Once again, He looks at the heart. So on the day of judgment, the truth about your Christianity will be laid bare. If you built your life on the solid rock of obedience to Jesus Christ, that will be made clear. And as your life is passed through the firestorm, it will stay standing in the end. But if you built your life on anything else, if your Christianity was just a show for those around you to look impressive, if Christianity was a matter of the outside and not a matter of the heart, if you didn't truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a one-on-one personal relationship with Him, then your house will crumble on the day of judgment. As the old hymn reminds us, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I like what William Barclay has to say about this. He writes, Knowledge only becomes relevant when it is translated into action. Knowledge must become action. Theory must become practice. Theology must become life. There are thousands of people who listen to the teaching of Jesus Christ every Sunday, yet make little or no deliberate attempt to put it into practice. If we are to be in any sense followers of Jesus, we must hear and do. Barclay goes on to write these words that I think are so powerful. He says, It is such obedience that Jesus demands. It is Jesus' claim that obedience to Him is the only sure foundation for life. And it is His promise that the life which is founded on obedience to Him, catch this, is safe. No matter what storms may come. I'd like you to really think about. Really think about, really meditate on these final words in this beautiful little quote here. Jesus promises that the life which is founded on obedience to Him is safe. Doesn't that sound so good? Doesn't that sound so reassuring? It's safe no matter what storms may come. Let those words sink deeply into your mind and heart. Obeying Christ keeps me safe. Speak to your mind and heart during times of trial, during times of temptation, during times of suffering, during times of ridicule, when your friends and family turn their backs on you. Say those words to yourself. Preach these words to yourself. Obeying Jesus Christ keeps me safe. Sometimes we need to say those words over and over again to ourselves because it's hard obeying Jesus. But obeying Jesus keeps me safe. It's the safest way to live. Jesus promises me that if I live my life in obedience to His Word, He will shield me. He will protect me. He will keep me safe no matter what storms come my way here in this world or on Judgment Day. What a glorious promise. Listen to this promise. 
Listen and take ownership in this promise. Own this and repeat it to yourself in your darkest hours. Oh, when you get cancer, say to yourself, I am safe in Christ as I obey Him. When you get criticized and laughed at for being a Christian, remind yourself that obedience to Christ will keep you safe. When your mom or dad or spouse dies suddenly and is no longer there when you need them, obedience to Christ will keep you safe. Uh, When your boss tells you you're fired or the eviction notice is delivered, obedience to Christ will keep you safe. When depression closes in on you and you feel like this world would be better off if you were dead than you being alive, remind yourself, obedience to Christ keeps me safe. When your life comes to an end and you stand before Jesus Christ and He feeds you and your life through the flames of testing, if your life has been built on the solid rock of obedience to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ guarantees you, you will be safe. Can you take hold of that this morning, church? I hope you will because it's so true. Now, that doesn't mean your problems will disappear. The road to heaven, once again, it's hard and it's bumpy and it's long. It's not for the faint of heart. But Jesus promises you, obedience to Christ makes every bit of pain and hardship meaningful. Christ's rewards will be so much greater than any difficulty we've had to face on the path of obedience. Amen? In northwest Florida, about 25 miles from Panama City, there's a little town of only a thousand or so people. It's a little town of Mexico City, Florida. And back in 2017, 2018, there was a builder that decided to to build himself a house right there on the sand along with all those other beach houses overlooking the beautiful Gulf of Mexico. And he built this three-story house, three stories tall, four bedrooms, four and a half baths, and he nicknamed it the Sand Palace. It looked like this. Isn't that gorgeous? The Sand Palace. Well, he finished that build in 2018, which just so happened to be the same year, a few months later, on October 10th, 2018, that Hurricane Michael traveled north through the Gulf of Mexico And made landfall there in Mexico City, Florida. Pretty much every home along the beach in Mexico City was turned into a pile of rubble. So guess what happened to the Sand Palace? Guess what happened? Surprisingly, this is what happened. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? The neighborhood was demolished. It was obliterated. But somehow the Sand Palace stood tall Through that hurricane. How did that possibly happen? It happened because of intentionality on the behalf of the builder and owner. You see, when the owner went to build this house, he got together with the builder and the engineer. And they ignored the building codes for how to build on that beach. You see, the code enforcement required that those homes along the beach be able to withstand 120 mile an hour winds. He built his house to withstand 240 mile an hour winds. They required that his footings go down some 20 feet underneath ground level. He took his footings down 40 feet and secured them solidly to bedrock. And when he was interviewed by a reporter after this hurricane had come through, 
He told a reporter from CNN, he said, I built my house to survive the big one. Isn't that good? I built my house to survive the big one. Friends, sooner or later, the big one will come. And when it does, will your faith stand the test? Will it stand firm or will your life crumble as it's fed through the storm? If your life is built firmly on the solid rock of obedience to Christ's teaching, you will not only survive the storm, you will also hear Jesus Christ speak those six glorious words that I live for. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. That was the easy part. Now comes the difficult part. You've got to live it out. You've got to build your life on obedience to the words of Christ that you've heard over these last six months. And I hope and pray that you'll go back to this Sermon on the Mount time and time and time again and build your life deeper and more solidly on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and His teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful blessing of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray that none of us listening to this broadcast would simply give you lip service, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the Word. I pray that we would be doers and live out your Word each and every day. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, once again, this is... Decision Sunday, we'd love for you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors. It's not complicated to accept Christ. It's hard following Him, but it's not complicated to begin following Him. We like to share the ABCs. A, you admit that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, you've done things against His Word, and you need to admit that to Him. Admit that you're a sinner and admit that you need a Savior. B, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you could be forgiven and have a relationship with God and begin that narrow road to heaven. And see, you choose to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord beginning today. If you have that decision to make, I encourage you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors right now. They'd love to talk with you. And I want to share a quick word with all of you about this wonderful little sand palace in Mexico City, Florida. There's a, a little tidbit about this story that I didn't share with you. Virtually every house in that neighborhood was demolished by that hurricane. But there was another house that stood solid. I want you to see this next picture. Right behind the sand palace was another house tucked in behind it. And that house hadn't been built as solidly as the sand palace had been built. It wasn't built with supporting footings that went down 40 feet. It wasn't built to withstand 240 mile an hour winds, but it was shielded from the force of that hurricane by the house that was. And I think there's a powerful message in this for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ and your faithful obedience to Him may be overlooked by many people today. 
Those around you may laugh at you. They may make fun of you. But I believe for many of those around you, there will come a day when that doctor tells them it's cancer and it's stage four. Or maybe they tragically lose their child in a car accident or they lose their spouse to a disease or some freak accident. Maybe a time comes when they're in financial ruin or they're in the depths of despair and depression. And they will see that during your trials, you consistently had a peace in Christ and a confidence in Christ and a consistency in Christ. And at those times, even though maybe they made fun of you today, tomorrow, maybe they'll look to you and they'll turn to Christ because your obedience to him shielded them through the storm. Oh, Jesus Christ has called us to be faithful. And even if we don't see it today. I believe that your faithful obedience will have an impact on others tomorrow. Do you believe that? I am really looking forward to the month of August. I'm going to share with you real quickly something I'm excited about coming up in the next month and a half. I've, as of this last week, officially signed up to run my first organized half marathon. On Saturday, September 11th, I'll be running a marathon, a half marathon, I should say, in Huntington Beach. It's called the Surf City Half Marathon. I'll be running for charity. I'll be running for the American Cancer Society. And as I run that race, I am going to challenge you to be praying for me between now and then because I've got a lot of preparation and training to do to get ready for it. I'm not ready for it right now, but I will be in a month and a half. So I'm going to take the month of August to discipline myself and train. And next week, we're going to be launching a brand new message series for the month of August that I'm calling Run the Race, based on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where the writer of Hebrews tells us, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I'm going to be giving you some challenges beginning next week to make some changes in your life during the month of August to begin living out much of what Jesus has taught us right here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be an exciting month of ministry. It's going to be an exciting month of looking at the vision God has given our church to move beyond COVID, to make a greater difference in the Victor Valley for Jesus Christ. I am so much looking forward to our study of running the race for Jesus Christ. You know what? Some of us might have a a year or two left to live. Some of us may have 50 more years. But regardless, we want to finish well. And we'll be running this race together for the glory of God and the building of Christ's kingdom right here in our corner of the world. It's going to be a great month. Don't miss it. Make sure you're back with us next Sunday. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.